Jeremy Grummet is a urologist in Melbourne, Australia, and a world leader in prostate cancer imaging and diagnostics. He's also a deep thinker and deeply interested in the well-being of surgeons and his colleagues. Our conversation meanders through personal struggle, burnout, or spin, as Dr. Grummet calls it, mental illness, and the emotional challenges associated with life and with being a surgeon. Core concepts of modeling vulnerability, the dichotomy between being a caregiver and a recipient of care, as well as self-care, are woven throughout the conversation. Jeremy is a master of thought and thought process, and you will love this conversation. Of note, he recommends a lot of books and references throughout the discussion. Those are listed in the notes of this episode. I hope you enjoy. My name is Phil Parazio, and I'm a urologic oncologist, a surgeon. Like many of you, I absolutely love what I do, and I would not choose another profession. But I have struggled with professional identity, practice efficiency, and wellness over the years. Operate with Zen is a podcast designed to explore a mindful approach to surgery and to being a surgeon. By discussing these struggles and mindful solutions, I hope together we can create a community of strong and healthy surgeons. Enjoy. Welcome to this episode of Operate with Zen. Today, I have the great pleasure from being joined across the world, Dr. Jeremy Grummet. Jeremy, introduce yourself to the audience. Hi, Phil. Thank you so much for um, uh, having me on your podcast. It's a great thrill for me, and uh, especially in talking about the stuff I hope we'll uh, get into today. Um, so I guess just to, by way of intro, um, I'm a practicing academic urologist um, here in Melbourne, I'm at the Alfred Hospital, uh, which is part of Monash University, which some people may or may not have heard of. Um, I guess like most urologists in Australia, and I'll, I'll be interested to know how this compares to you guys, um, I, I work part-time in private practice as well. Um, and so what that means is I work in actually five different hospitals, um, uh, which might seem a little bit strange to you guys, but um, uh, you, like you would typically just work in one, I guess. Yeah, well, it depends on the system. So, you know, technically uh, at our system in, in the University of Pennsylvania, when I'm on call, I cover five hospitals. Oh, but my, right. Yeah, but my day-to-day is in one hospital. But I do have colleagues who may work at two or three hospitals o- along the course of a week. Yeah. So, you know, there's a bit of fragmentation uh, that you have to manage, in, in I guess, in, in daily work life. Um, but I guess on the other hand, you know, I kind of get a window on both systems, public and private. Um, and, you know, sometimes they can inform each other about you know, things like standards of care and ways of working. So so anyway, that's, I guess that's um, my sort of day-to-day. I, I've done and, and supervised a fair bit of research, which is really focused on prostate cancer diagnostics, um, especially MRI um, and transperineal biopsy is, is probably what I've really mainly published on. And that sort of area of interest led on to creating uh, an online platform, uh, which uh, I've co-founded uh, called MRI Pro. And we made that to design uh, or we designed it for, for training up urologists and, and radiologists into reading prostate MRI accurately. So that's been a real passion project of mine uh, over the last few years now. Um, and otherwise, uh, I guess the main thing I do, and, and I'm going to spend a fair bit of time on it for the rest of today is, um, I work as a member on the EAU uh, Prostate Cancer Guidelines Panel. Uh, I've been on that for the last five years or so. Um, and we update, update those guidelines every year, um, which is, you know, fairly uh, uh, taxing, I suppose, in one sense, but it's quite fulfilling because I think um, you know, there's a lot of countries, not just in Europe, that use these guidelines. I know America's obviously got your own set. Um, but in doing that, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that it's quite impactful and making quite a difference on, you know, how we practice uh, prostate cancer care, which is not just uh, opinion, but it's really based on hopefully the best and, and the latest data available. Um, and I guess finally, personally, I'm, I'm 50. Um, I've been married for 23 years. I've got four daughters aged between 13 and 21, two of them at uni, two at school. 
So uh, as I'm sure you can imagine, home life has been pretty busy, but uh, I absolutely credit uh, my wife for managing the vast majority of that. Um, and again, again, sort of moving into the, you know, the I guess the more human side, uh, you know, my mum is 89. Um, she went into aged care just a few weeks ago. So uh, it's because her Parkinson's was making her fall a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, she'd been living at home on her own for uh, for a few years since dad died. So that's been a really big transition for her to manage. Um, but also for the rest of us, I'm one of four sons. Um, and, uh, you know, we sort of help look after mum as well. So, so I guess that's kind of where I'm at uh, today. Yeah, well, thanks for um, sharing all of it, you know, and you and I have crossed crossed paths uh, a few times, but it's been uh, it's been really interesting to kind of connect over wellness and and mindfulness, which has been kind of a new passion for the both of us. And one of the things I've always kind of uh, respected about your work is contributing to guidelines, writing the guidelines, but also being incredibly passionate and honest about the way you speak about these things. And uh, I've seen some of that come through on the wellness front too. So really looking forward to getting into it today. Well, thanks, Phil. That's that's very kind of you. Um, well, anyway, I'm 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 really prepared to be as honest and open as you like today because I think it's actually one of the one of the messages I want to get out. I guess by you know your uh, awesome podcast today is is you know where like I said I'm 50. I'm, I guess I'm mid career. Uh, it's very similar, perhaps uh, in in many ways to to where you're at and yours. And um, you know, you can sort of feel yourself stepping into leadership and a sense of seniority and and um and you you kind of recognize that a lot of the junior guys and, and junior uh all, all our juniors are uh looking at us uh as role models and i mean we, we see that obviously in our own kids in, a, in the family but you know there's no doubt it's happening uh in the hospital and at university so uh i think there's a, there's a better way that we can hopefully conduct ourselves uh, in order to maintain our, our own well-being. Yeah. And it's a beautiful segue right into what I was going to ask you is, um, you know, tell us your, your wellness journey. Um, all, you know, we all evolve and our wellness journeys continue to evolve, but kind of bring us through your history of where you started and where you are and what got you so interested in this. Yep. Uh, very happy to. So, um, actually I get, maybe before I get into that, um, I've got to say, I find it hard to land on the right sort of wording in this topic. You know, we, we talk about wellness and well-being. They're, they're perfectly good terms. But, and I'm sure you've noticed this, as soon as these things become popular sort of concepts in the in the psyche, it, it seems that they get like parodied or hijacked by people with, you know, maybe less uh, well-meaning motives. And, um, and so I'm kind of... I'm just mindful that you know the more we we use that terminology, the more the more risk we are of, of sort of being um, mocked, perhaps. But anyway, I, I uh, I'm interested in this field and, and talking with you because yeah, I'm like you, I'm t- genuinely curious about it, um, uh, and I think hopefully I can share some stuff that might be might be useful. Um, I'll I'll use I'll try and use the term well-being because I think it may be slightly less sort of bastardized than than the wellness sort of industry that's kind of sprung up at least in my part of the world um so uh, and i guess um i'm happy to to share you know much of my story uh, with with the intention of of i guess modeling a bit of vulnerability um and i think uh as surgeons um and probably more so residents and trainees you know i think we have a huge fear of showing any vulnerability and there's, a, there's, there's really good reasons for that. Um, um, and yet our vulnerable space, I guess, is uh, is really where we all live, you know, whether we're a surgeon or not, you know, our inner lives are swimming in vulnerability. Um, but I think it's rare that we, you know, let that see the light of day uh, to our outer lives and to other people. So, uh, look, I, I think it's a, such a shame because, you know, you think about the times when you did let someone else into your vulnerable space or when you, you had, a, had the privilege of someone else inviting you into theirs and I, I remember times like that as moments of really you know the deepest connection with with other humans which i reckon when you break it all down it's it's what we all really crave so you know i hope maybe we can come back to that later but i um i think that uh, this is something anyone in leadership can probably do to help uh, change a, a less than healthy culture that we we may have in surgery into into a much healthier one so 
I guess I can't really talk about my own journey without giving you some some family context because that's where it all begins. Um, so you feel free to cut me off if I go too deep into this. Um, yeah. But my, uh, you know, and look, this is this is the reality. You know, my my maternal uh, grandmother, so my mum's mum, uh, she suffered severe depression um, uh, as a as an adult woman, and she'd be bed bound for you know months at a time. Um, so this is when my own mother was growing up in, you know, in her household. And, um, uh, and, and then as my mum tells it, at least, you know, she'd appear in the kitchen one day, uh, her mother, uh, and just sort of announce, oh, my, my clouds lifted. Um, and she'd be kind of back to normal, but this was literally after two or three months of not being able to get out of bed. Right. So that was all happening, you know, once or twice a year when my mum was growing up. So I think, you know, that must've had a pretty indelible sort of impact on, on my mother's psyche, uh, but to my mum's credit, she's somehow maintained a, a pretty uh, incredibly positive and sort of stoic out, outlook on life uh, since then. Uh, on my dad's side, uh, his his dad also had bouts of depression, although nowhere near as severe, um, but still, you know, bad enough that he had to go and have stays with cousins in the country for a while um, to ride it out. Um, Closer to home, I guess, um, you know, one of my first cousins uh, had schizophrenia and and actually uh, very sadly took her own life uh, at 27. That was that was, you know, more than more than 20 years ago. But again, this is the sort of family context that I've grown up in. Um, and, you know, I mentioned before, I'm one of four brothers and, and one of my own brothers um, has been plagued by bipolar disorder um, and mainly the, the depressive side of that really ever since he was 17. Um, so. You know, and he's now uh, late middle age. So, um, you know, there's a lot going on there uh, in terms of background. And, I, and I'm sure that colours um, where I come from myself uh, in terms of this whole wellness area. I mean, that is the human side. And I think we're getting much better at talking about this sort of stuff and bringing it out in the open. But certainly in years past, you know, this stuff was never talked about. You know, if, if people were mentally ill in your family or your friends or whatever, it was all shoved under the carpet. Um, and swept under the carpet, I should say, and um, and I think that's a shame because it it prevents us having those you know deeper connections where people are vulnerable, like I was saying before. Yeah. So and I just, I, Jeremy, I just want to you know take it take an opportunity to say first of all, thank you for being so vulnerable with us, and and as you said, modeling that behavior. Um, and I think it's just important to note that there is not a person in this world whose family or loved ones is not affected by mental illness. And the stigma we have about talking about these things or not talking about these things is something we really need to get over because this is shared experience. This is vulnerability that sets the stage for, um, where, where we're going, where you're going with this conversation. So thank you for starting here. No, no worries. Um, yeah, look, I think it's important and, um, I'm, I'm happy to, as I say, I'm happy to share. So, so that's kind of, I guess. Oh, and, and then I've got, you know, my wife's family side is is has also had, you know, got a whole lot of similar uh, issues within it. And um, I won't go uh, in deep deep onto that side, but but you know, you get the picture. And and actually, it's probably one of the main reasons. Uh, you know, we met when we were in our twenties, and probably one of the main reasons we actually got together in the first place because we had this really shared understanding of of mental illness in our own family. So. Um, so that was my sort of background, I guess. Um, then, then, and, and this is where it, you know, it, it starts to really sort of uh, come home. Like I've always obviously had that background, but uh, you know, then as my uh, brothers and I became adults, you know, our parents obviously got old, they got frail, um, and we got more involved with, you know, caring for, you know, for one of my brothers who I said uh, has been had really quite severe mental illness um, throughout his adult life. And I think that's a, that's a really tricky one when you're, you're the carer of one of your siblings um, for much of, of his life, especially when he's older than you, that's, that's kind of a tricky dynamic. Um, it sort of reminds me that, you know, when, when he's well, um, it's a, it's an action, it's just a sheer joy to, you know, just to hang out because you're just his brother. Uh, you're not, uh, his carer. So, um, but, but the reality is that a lot of the time then he's not, he's not well, you, you have to, um, you know, switch into that carer role, which I suppose, you know, with decades now, you kind of get used to it to an extent. Um, so again, that's, that's sort of how I'm coming at this whole wellness uh, space. Then a few years ago, um, so I'm like in my forties, 
uh, and this is well before COVID hit. So it was, you know, not related to that because obviously that, you know, we all know extraordinary impact that COVID's had on on our uh, not just our physical health but you know our mental space. Um, I actually had some pretty stressful uh, stuff going on myself, which really sent me into a spin. So sort of suddenly for the first time, you know, as being used to that carer role I was talking about for my brother, I actually needed a bit of help myself. Um, And, you know, I won't go into all all the details by any means, but I think that, you know, the sort of stuff that happens somewhere along your life, you know, they're they're pretty common to experience, uh, you know, some, you know, the slings and arrows that life throws at you. Um, So it wasn't anything really out of the ordinary when, when I look back at, uh, at what happened, but um, it's something I uh, really struggled to, to to manage at the time. So, what that translated into was uh, anxiety. Um, so, in terms of how I reacted to these situations, I, I um, uh, had had uh, basically developed some uh, significant anxiety. Now, I'd you know previously been prone to episodes of feeling a bit flat from time to time, but only ever a few days, and you know, it's pretty pretty normal part of the human experience, I think. Um, but this is really different. Um, so that was kind of scary in itself. Like I'm I'm in my forties, and I'm thinking, what what's this feeling? And I've never felt it before. So, so uh, you know, and and we can go into more detail in terms of you know what it actually feels like. And I'm sure plenty of people in the audience would be able to relate to anxiety. I mean, it's just so super common. But but it was new for me, and um, and you know, I so I needed to get. I helped myself. It, it um, you know, it led to insomnia um, and uh, just a, just a whole lot of stress. So, um, Jeremy, I'm I curious think, if you could tell us, you yeah. know, how that how did it impact you surgically? You know, as a surgeon uh, in the hospital, out of the hospital, whatever it may have been, what did you notice going on in your surgical existence? Yeah. So what I yeah, it's a great question, Phil. So I was exhausted. That's what that's what I, I was noticing. So I was basically running this sort of double track in my mind of doing all the usual problem solving of uh, you know clinical problems uh, as we do day to day in in the clinics in the operating theater. All of that was going on as per usual, but at the same time, I had this whole other set of or, or stream of thoughts going on um, about worry and. Um, uh, uh, and feeling this sort of physical sense of uh, that's what struck me was this bodily sense of um, of of stress slash anxiety, which which was new. Uh, and I'd wake up with it. Uh, I'd uh, uh, I'd wake up and suddenly my you know my stomach was in knots and I'd have a hot sweat and all this sort of stuff was going on. So it was pretty yeah you know, it was pretty full on to the point where you know I, I, like I said I really needed help um, and uh, you know so I, I needed to see my family doctor um, and uh, and and actually for the first time actually go on medication um for for anxiety and you know again uh it's pretty rare that that we would talk about this sort of stuff because i think there's a lot of fear of um being uh thought of as as not being as as perfect and solid and and so on as you should as a surgeon but um but when you look at the stats if you've got uh, we we all know how incredibly common you know things like anxiety and depression are. So if and we know how high they are in doctors and particularly in surgeons. So if we go around pretending that no one's actually got it, then you know we're all none of us are really telling the whole truth. So that's why I look. I think you know there and there. I've got to admit, there's part of me that that thinks, oh, I'm not really sure about sharing that sort of information you know it's uh i do it, it i am i am feeling vulnerable in that sense but but i think um in the grander scheme of things it's it's worth mentioning this stuff because it it set me on a path um having had this experience of okay i've had this experience um i'm this is a place i do not want to go back to so so he he prescribed uh, some medication which I took. Thankfully, I only need, needed it for six months, and then I came out of it. Um, so th- you know, this is going back a few years now. And again, that's why probably I feel more comfortable talking about it now. I think if if you are still suffering or you are still in the midst of mental difficulties, then it's really hard to to share at that time because you you're perhaps not feeling your your best self, uh, your strongest self. It's there is some comfort i guess in 
saying that, yeah, well, I've lived through this and uh, got to the other side and and I'm still carrying on, you know, as a, a you know, hopefully pretty capable and uh, useful surgeon in the community. So, uh, you know, which is where I'm at now, I think. So, yeah. And I was going to say, Jeremy, you know, I think it's really uh, important to kind of highlight that, that part of the the mood disorder, whether you want to call it that formally or not, is kind of a um, a deranged thinking about reality and not understanding completely where you fit in. And sometimes it takes the perspective of getting out of it to understand where you are. And I think it's it's really important to highlight. And, and a lot of the science here comes from the trauma literature and right. in people who have experienced, whether it's physical trauma, emotional trauma, whatever it may be, how these things are manifested physically in our bodies, whether it's mm. anxiety, tension, sweats, knots in the belly, whatever it may be, and how a lot of that can be your cues that something is not going on correctly with you and can be the cue to get help. And I just, you know, in in the sense of expressing vulnerability here, um, I was a resident and was really struggling in residency, had some pretty significant stuff in my family going on and ended up going through a divorce and six months of SSRIs made yep. a huge difference right. in my life and helped me get things back on track right. and um, big benefit and getting sleep, getting help, reaching out uh, was one of the greatest things I ever did. And I encourage people that this is shared human experience. Right. We, we all experience trauma. We all experience, mm-hmm. I love how you call it slings and arrows and we end up in spins. And yeah. when you're in that spin, you know, recognizing the things uh, that are going on to recognize, first of all, I'm in a spin and then trying to seek the ways out of it. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I've got to thank you for, you know, for, for going there as well, Phil, because it's not easy necessarily, I think in our culture to just talk about this stuff. Um, So, you know, I think it's incredibly important that, that we do sort of fess up to reality um, and not keep trying to hide this stuff. So thanks for, for mentioning that as well and, and and i guess what you're alluding to as well like it was such a circuit breaker like i was i was pulling out all the you know the cognitive cognitive uh sort of therapy on myself and trying to read the right books it just didn't allow my body to snap out of its its pattern that it had gone into and and again that's what was so weird was that you know like i'd said before you know as a as a younger guy, you know, you'd have a few days where you're a bit flat and whatever, but it was all very mental, um, I thought, whereas this new experience was so physical. Um, and, and actually, it reminds me, you know, um, of that book, uh, which I have to admit I haven't read, but I've certainly heard about. Um, but I love the title, The Body Keeps the Score. I don't know if you've read that one. Incredible yeah. book. Right. So I think that's very much what you're uh, alluding to there in terms of, you know, traumatic experiences and stuff. And and you know, obviously there's a huge variation in trauma uh, that, that we uh, may experience in life, but uh, how you respond to that uh, or react, depending on what your, you know, skill levels are in that sense is is super important. I think that's where there's a huge amount that we can help each other with and help our colleagues with, um, because I don't think it's anywhere near part of our sort of core curriculum that we come through with. And yet, I mean, life as a human is tricky enough, but then throw in on top of the fact that you're a surgeon and you're, you know, you've got a stressful uh, operating situation, but you've also often dealing with, you know, patients every day with life-threatening illnesses. And we, we just, you know, we just suck it up. We take it on board. It's like, yeah, that's what surgeon, surgery is. We, we do it every day. And that, there's, that's truth in that. But then have a look at the stats. Look, like I read on... Um, David Keynes's website, you know, his well-prepped um, app, and and he talks about forty-six percent of doctors have burnout. Now, half half of us have burnout. That is insane um, when you think about it. I mean, that is not okay. Um, it's a whole bunch of individual doctors who have got to, you know, step up and learn a few things. Of course, we, there's there's stuff that we need to talk about there, but. It also, I think when you've got that sort of proportion tells us there is an endemic systematic problem within medicine or surgery or the smaller bubble of urology, which, which that you and I can hopefully help with. Um, 
where we need to address, okay, why why is this? We need to go back to the origin of of how we got here. So, yeah, it, Jeremy, once you bring up some great points, and uh, you know, burnout is another one of those terms that has gotten uh, thrown around and occasionally has a bad connotation. Yeah. I think honestly, because of the way a lot of our administrators. Uh, administration, not to put this necessarily on people, has kind of viewed it as kind of this thing that needs to be addressed instead of the people and the systems that need to be addressed. But it is, and and you know, you, you called it the spins before or, or burnout. I mean, these are the, we're talking about the same thing here. And I think the other thing that's really important to highlight is you talked about. And listen, as surgeons, we take care of people all of the time, right. and. I don't know about your practice, but you know, uh, in my practice, a fair amount, specifically with testicular cancer patients, I have mental health conversations all the time, right? Wow. More, more testicular cancer survivors will die of depression, anxiety, suicide, than will die of testicular cancer. That's just the nature of the disease. And so if we don't have that conversation, we're doing them a disservice. Yet how many of us are afraid to have that conversation amongst ourselves or to each other? Uh, and it's a really important thing uh, to to highlight. Yeah, and and so that's probably uh, you know I've talked about vulnerability, making ourselves uh, vulnerable um, to an extent, and you got to do that in a safe space as well. Like you, you don't want to be uh, cavalier about it, um, but that's one thing. And the, but the other thing I think is just creating, starting the conversation, and I think that's exactly what you're doing. You know, all credit to you with this podcast. You're you're. You're a surgeon, but you're happy to go there. You're talking about philosophy and psychology and well-being. And we need to explore these spaces, not just, and, and I think this is the kicker, you know, and this might just be the hook that gets surgeons into thinking about this more, is not just for our own well-being, but this lets us, makes us care for our patients better. So... You know, no matter how masochistic or maybe unself-caring we're prepared to be for the sake of our patients, it's a it's totally false economy. Doesn't make sense. Patients get the best care by surgeons who take care of themselves. So, if you want to be truly professional, and that's again, that's another sort of tag. We want we all want to be professional. That's sort of the, uh, I guess, the milieu that we've we've grown up in. In the current era, it's not enough just to know what tests to order, when to operate, or more importantly, when not to operate. You've got to know how to take care of your own well-being in order to provide your patients, I reckon, with the best possible care. Or you'll end up another statistic. In fact, even if you do all the right things, you know, for your well-being, you can still end up a statistic because you're a human being. So it's definitely part of the message I'd, I'd love to get across. Yeah, I'm going to say it again here, and I'm sure I'm going to say it again when we summarize, but patients get the best care from surgeons who take care of themselves. And I think that's an incredibly important message. So take us through it. Now that you've started, um, you know, uh, you've come through your personal struggles and issues. Um, and if you want to get, if you, if you want to finish more of that story, please do. But tell us how you think about helping, you know, colleagues and trainees and the people underneath us. Um, how, mm. how do we do this now? Yeah, it's, uh, so so maybe I'll try and answer that in, in, in two parts. I guess just to, to finish off the, you know, I said that it sort of sent me down a new path. I mean, I, I've always had a, an interest in, in philosophy and psychology, but I've never done any formal educational training in those areas. But because I had this lived experience, oh, hang on, this is, you know, life is suddenly uh, not going as well as, it, as I'm used to, um, it really sent me down that path uh, much more deeply um, so that, you know, when I wasn't working as a surgeon, you know, my off time and after hours and whatever, I was just devouring books and podcasts and so forth uh, in all this stuff. So, um, and that, and that's sort of, I guess, just snowballed um, in, into, uh, into what I want to do now, which I'll come to in a minute. But, uh, but I did want to just maybe highlight a couple of things that I found really helpful at that time. And, this might be useful for the uh, audience as well. Is one of the thing, one of the resources I started with, and I, and I don't think I think I just stumbled on it really was um, uh, the School of Life stuff. I think you and I might have uh, mentioned this in previous conversations, but Alain de Botton, you know, who's a, a British philosopher, has created what's called the School of Life, and there is an enormous amount of extremely useful content um, on their site. Um, that you can you can sign up to, and it's in little bite-sized 
pieces. So it's not like you have to open some tome of philosophy to to get the nuggets. Um, he writes in these beautiful little uh, these little sort of vignettes um, about you know all sorts of different specific aspects um, of how to live um, and and all the all the different stuff that uh, all the challenges that we come up with uh, up against and and how we might cope with them. Um, so that was. I just, you know, plowed my way through that, and and part of it is is using all. It admittedly, focuses probably more, much more so on Western philosophy than Eastern, but found it hugely helpful. Um, and then the other as the other thing that that really helped was um, uh, Sam Harris's Waking Up app, um, which uh, I'm sure many of the listeners would have heard of and maybe are, are using out there. I found that. Really interesting. That's that's really a meditation app, um, and and at that time, uh, you know, a few years ago, I I think in my mind, uh, I, didn't, I didn't really know what meditation was. I'd never done it before. Um, I I guess had this connotation of what maybe we might say here in Australia is being a little bit wanky. Um, I don't know if that may, if that resonates in in the US, um, but I, you know, I couldn't have been more wrong, obviously. But that that's just that's just what I what I thought. Um, but what I found with that is that it gives me an entirely new way of approaching you know, my thoughts and emotions, which is super helpful. This, I mean, there's heaps of apps out there out, uh, that, that people can can look at. And this particular one sort of appealed to me because it's um, it's kind of pitched at an intellectual level, um, and I think as, as maybe as doctors and, and surgeons, that that is is quite a uh, quite attractive, so the, it really appealed to my int- intellectual curiosity about you know stuff like what what is consciousness, um, what is the self, uh, and things like that. And and you know you can go in as, as deep or as shallow as you want into those things. But I, I for me I, I found that really appealing because that was all part of it wasn't just uh, here's ten minutes of doing meditation, but it's here's what it's all based on. Here's the background. Here's the context. The history. Um, of why we're doing this, and I found that really useful. So, so anyway, um, that was, uh, I guess, you know, the pathway I went down. And so I thought, well, if I'm, if I'm feeling this, and if I've, you know, had these experiences, um, and I've been, you know, mid, I'm, I'm a mid career surgeon. There's no way I'm alone here, right? There's, there's going to be so many of my colleagues uh, and and also juniors who are going to be experiencing similar things i i there was a point where you know uh, i was struggling uh, i didn't have the tools uh, uh and the the skills that uh in retrospect would have been probably extremely helpful helpful to frame uh what i was experiencing in a much more useful way so i thought well there's scope here um scope here to use my lived experience um to hopefully help other people so one of the things i'm doing phil is um i guess starting to try and 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 do this help i guess first of all doing this podcast with you is hopefully uh gonna help get the message out there but perhaps more uh close to home um in november this year uh i'm running a session. So every year, all the train, all the urology trainees in Australia and New Zealand get together for what, what they call trainee week. There's about 80, 80 odd trainees from across the two countries uh, get together for the whole week. And uh, we as consultants uh, are invited in to speak and um, discuss, you know, all the usual issues, you know, prostate cancer stones, blah, blah. And um, so I got invited to come and speak. I, the hospital that I work at is kind of renowned for its trauma care. Uh, so we, you know, we have we're like a tertiary trauma center, so we see a lot of kidney and bladder trauma. Um, but I, when I was asked, I thought, well, yeah, I'm very happy to speak to the to the trainees. But is it okay if I choose the topic, um, and it's a little bit different to what you what you've asked me to do? Um, and so I said, can I can I run a session called Surgeon the Surgeon as Human? Um, and uh, to the organizers' credit, uh, they said, "Yep, uh, that that sounds awesome. Let's do it." So we haven't done it yet, so I, <laughs> I've got to be careful about uh, cranking it up too much because uh, it'll be really interesting to see how we go. But I've got three cracking speakers in um, for the session. So I've got two 
organizational psychologists. Um, uh, Jackie Knight uh, is one of them. Uh, another one is Cherie Johnson, and she's actually uh, written a brilliant book uh, that you know anyone in the audience uh, can obviously get their hands on. It's called The Thriving Doctor, uh, which I would strongly recommend. So she's she's fascinating, Cherie. Um, she's you know been a psychologist for many years, but um, she's really uh, honed in on on working with doctors. So that's really her whole practice. She's both a psychologist and a coach for doctors um, in Australia. And you know, presumably she can, you know, with, with Zoom and so forth, she can do it with anyone in the world. But um, she's fabulous. So she's going to come and speak. Um, and uh, we have a mindfulness meditation expert, uh, Professor Craig Hassard, so he's been in this space for years. Uh, he's been an absolute front runner in mindfulness meditation, but he's coming at it from the the you know the evidence based scientific perspective. Um, he wrote a terrific book, and again, this is like I don't know, twenty years old now, um, called Know Thyself. It's not specifically directed towards doctors, but it's all about mindfulness meditation. So I'm thrilled that these people are going to have access to all of our you know, local trainees, um, and I'll be really interested to see what their response is, and I'm, I'm hoping that it'll be a really useful session. So we've just got two hours to bring it all together, and um, we'll see what happens. That's pretty incredible. I wish you the best of luck in that, and uh, look forward to seeing some excellent results, and hopefully maybe even tuning in from uh, afar if it's allowed. But I, I just want to say, you know, I think you and I think very similarly on this. I think if you think of the progression on, on how we get better, I mean, if you want to think about tangible steps, if somebody out there is thinking on how do I make my local community better? How do I make the hospital better? How do I make my specialty better? How do I make surgeons better? Start with the message and just having conversations, model the behavior, and then Mm -hmm. start as you, you kind of get experience talking to people, start planning out the formal work and, and it kind of will progress naturally. And you'll, you'll learn kind of what the audience needs, what you need and how to getting back to where you started, how to be vulnerable with them and express these important, important aspects of our, of our life. And I think, um, you know, to that point, and also with the title of your, your, your session there, you know, the, the unofficial theme for this season on the podcast has become, I'm a physician and a human, or I'm a surgeon and a human, and that we have these dichotomies. And in a very Buddhist sense, um, we are not one, and we are not both. We're all the same, right? We are surgeons. Right. We are humans. We exist in both of these spaces and they are mm-hmm. incredibly reliant on each other to be successful mm. in those spaces. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, you know, we can, it's a bit like what you were alluding to before about it, you know, hospital administration, how they deal with burnout. You know, there's a, you can have a kind of a knee jerk response where you sort of go straight into problem solving mode and you think, okay, there's a problem here. I'm exhausted. I'm burnt out or whatever. Um, let's do yoga. Let's do more running. Let's now I'm not dissing those things. They're, they're super important and really useful, but, but I think um, it's probably to be even more holistic, um, go back to the start, open up the conversation um, and recognize that the problems we're experiencing are uh, are, are much broader than that. They are they are human issues, and they're exacerbated probably by our surgical culture, um, and um, and that's how we that's the starting point I think of, of how we try and correct the issues that are occurring. I mean, you know, we've talked a little bit about burnout, we've talked about anxiety, depression, but you know, then you've got substance abuse, you've got bullying and harassment. Um, I'm not sure in, in the states is is an issue. It's a, it's been a huge issue in, huge in the issue. media right in here in Australia as well, um, something that we're all trying to uh, work on. And then, and then you know, even to the worst extent, suicide. And, and as I said before, all of these issues uh, indicate terrible suffering from the, for, the, for the doctor or surgeon themselves, but, but they're also going to have a negative impact on patient care. So I wonder, um, Phil, if you're uh, happy to, because one of the things I did want to, sort of discuss with you and get your thoughts on this actually is is how did we get here and because maybe just while you're thinking about that I've because I've got a, a bit of a theory that I'd like to sort of um, put out there and, and I think one of the things might be I, I'm really sort of focusing on surgery now is um, you know where did this culture come from why for example are our 
workday is punishingly long and, and just a, an expected norm. Um, you know, why do some of us do such early morning ward rounds that often actually wake patients from what should be restorative, you know, recuperating sleep? Um, why the strictly vertical hierarchical sort of department structures, etc. Now, as I say, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts, but I reckon possibly a lot of that sort of stuff, and I've only picked out a few sort of little examples, I guess, maybe it derives from military history and you know, surgery in wartime, which is obviously mostly trauma. So that's where a lot of um, our advances in medicine and surgery have come from. Um, you know, if you're trying to mend a, uh, the wounded out in the field, there's not a whole lot of time for niceties and and there is a real imperative for orders to be obeyed, for protocols to follow. You know, you, that's what you've got to you've got to do that. And there's no arguments, no questioning, or you're the soldier in front of you might bleed to death. So I just wonder whether this template for sort of expected behaviour and culture might have been laid down, you know, over the decades since the you know World Wars One and Two. Um, and you know, if that's the case, how useful is that um, in present day, you know, mostly? peacetime uh, elective surgery that, that we da- conduct on a day-to-day sort of basis. I, I just wonder if it's a bit analogous to, you know, you've got your chronic versus acute stress response. And, you know, if you're constantly working to the bone under a whole lot of stress without any balance in your life, because, you know, you're doing it all for the patients. Well, we know that's just not sustainable, right? And, and that that chronic stress response, um, you know, your mind and, and your body are experiencing are going to, almost certainly end up in causing some sort of illness uh, at, at some stage. On the other hand, you've got, you know, the acute stress from time to time. Well, that's a natural part of surgery and life. And there's no getting around that. But that's okay because you need to experience that stress. Let's say you've got a sudden bleeder uh, from some unexpected anatomy. You, you need an appropriate stress response in order to handle that rapidly and appropriately. And that sort of acute stress, to my knowledge, that doesn't affect your long-term health it's that chronic stress response so i wonder i well i'd be keen to hear your thoughts but i just reckon we probably need to transform our surgical culture into one that's a bit more like that acute response from time to time but most of the time we're running perhaps a little bit more on our parasympathetics rather than our sympathetic system um and that we recognize that we're humans before we're surgeons uh, and all that goes with that, because there's a lot, um, and that's where the conversations are, where perhaps we, val- we value balance before overwork because we know it's better for us but also for our patients, uh, where maybe we stop you know, praying to the gods of productivity um, and put, although, don't get me wrong, productivity is really important, but maybe just put it back in its place below the rung on the ladder where, well-being sits um so you know we can still prepare our surgeons for for all the hardships that will simply happen in a surgical career um but i think we can potentially do things differently I, i've rambled on way too long there, no no there's some there's some beautiful thoughts there and i uh, try and tackle uh, each one you know you kind of ask you know how did we get how did we get here how did we arrive yeah. here and um i'm not sure we've arrived here i think we've kind of always been here we're just finally starting to get to the point of self-awareness and i think the history goes back even further i mean look at if you look at the history of surgery uh, or even of medicine i mean uh, the earliest physicians were kind of in the priest classes right where there was an association with divinity and uh, and i'm talking kind of prehistoric you know uh not prehistoric but but bce here at least and then you know it evolves you know as you said kind of into wartime surgeons particularly in the hellenistic era that's where a lot of our anatomy and understanding comes from and then literally you know throughout the enlightenment and before kind of what you call modern surgery and before anesthesia the best surgeons were the fastest surgeons right that was the whole right we couldn't put people to sleep so you weren't judged by how well you did an operation but by how fast because you inflicted less harm to your patients if you could operate quickly and you know we and, and i think the hierarchy was built into that right you really had to follow the person who was leading the room and I say this all of the time now when I talk to trainees and I start uh, and I lecture now on on kind of how we fit in and how we change surgical culture is 
there needs to be some level of hierarchy for safety, right? We need to be able to follow orders and, and report up. But that level of hierarchy does not say that one person is better than the other person in the room. And I think that's where surgeons and surgery has gone wrong is the the God complex, the ego complex that I'm the most important person in the room. False, mm. flat out false. The patient's the most important person in the room. And mm. everybody in that area or, or involved in their care is vital to their care. Nurses, techs, the people who clean the rooms, anesthesiologists, surgeons, all have different skill sets, all absolutely essential to quality care. And I think it's removing that ego is part of the process of improving our culture. So I hope that was some answer to kind of the, you know, that, where that comes from. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love it. No, totally agree with that, Phil. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I think some of it is honestly just human nature. You talk about the early AM rounds, waking people up. You're right. That makes absolutely no sense. The other one that makes no sense to me still, and I think the residents are starting to get better at this, is rounds. Why do we go around to every single room and write notes in 2022 when we're recording this podcast? I mean, listen, I trained at Johns Hopkins where the term came from because there was a rotunda that you literally walked around in to see the patients. Interesting. And even when I was a brand new resident, you had to go to each patient's room to get their vital signs. So there was a sense of rounding. Now everything's electronic medical record. You could sit in a conference room, efficiently go over each patient, develop a preliminary plan. And then, as you said, at a much better time when the patient's already awake, right. go validate your physical exam, verify your plans, go over it with the patient in a much more kind and thoughtful process. But we're, we're, creatures of habit, right? And yeah. and it's hard to change those habits. It's hard to change culture. So maybe over time we work on on those things. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's great examples. But but this is where I think people of our sort of vintage it's time for us to to step up and and you know just even have the headspace to have those ideas because that's the thing. You're so you get so busy that you don't even get a your brain doesn't get a chance to think outside that that habit space that you're you've been doing on every day for the last 20 plus years um so for us to actually make thinking time part of our schedule actually why do we do it stuff like this is it beneficial for our patients is it conducive to our own well-being and if it's not rethink you know yeah yeah um, and- yeah. And there's a classic quote and I, I can't remember the attribution right now, but if you're too busy to think you're too busy. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Right. Yeah. Totally. There's, maybe there's one, I mean, I know um, uh, we're coming to an end of, of, of the time field, but there's, there's probably one other thing that I think is super important that often gets overlooked. Um, and that's just humor. Um, it's so important that we don't lose that. I reckon, cause uh again you know going back to what we we're talking about before we we're, we've got a serious job we're cutting people's bodies and hopefully mending them and curing them and helping them but we can't screw it up right it's it's pretty important stuff um and so when you do that day in day out when you then have those consultations with with patients who have had a complication or whose cancer you can't cure um, etc. That can, I think, you can potentially become a little bit calcified into a kind of a, a serious or solemn mindset. And that's entirely appropriate to a point. But if it overtakes your whole mindset, then I think you've got a problem. Um, so I just wanted to put in a plug for my, trying to remember to keep things a bit light. And whenever you can crack a joke, take the piss out of someone in, you know, in the nicest possible way. Cause that you, that tells, tells them that you, you love them basically when, when you can, you know, when you can take the mickey out of someone, you know, that you've, you've got a, a strong bond, I reckon, um, and vice versa. So that's the sort of stuff I think we should uh, really try and remember to incorporate day to day in our lives, because it's, I think there's a bit of a, a tidal pull away from that into the into the land of seriousness, and and seriousness can also breed that that self importance as well, which is a real danger. Um, 
so yeah i just wanted to to throw that that idea oh, in as well i think it's beautiful and and uh you know it gets to the point of being human again is expressing humor and connecting people and humor is often vulner- vulnerability as well too yeah. and yeah. it is expressing kind of uh the light side of some very serious matters sometimes and and it's important it's an important way to connect with people just like it is to talk about the seriousness of their disease or the seriousness of the treatment you're recommending or whatever it may be mm-hmm. yeah yeah. yeah, and sometimes it has to be dark because you know dark humor because um because that's the nature of uh, of of what we do. But that's okay. I think dark humor is is useful, and we should embrace it. Yeah, especially listen, you know, grave situations, mm. and and sometimes it's just that's the natural progression. Ryan trying to it would be pretty inappropriate to try and fit something you know rainbows and uh, unicorns Correct. into that exactly. Huh? And I just, I think it's important to to touch on the topic you brought up too, about kind of the acute and chronic stress response. And you're right. I mean, to be honest with you, um, part of the reason surgery can be so much fun for some people is that acute kind of adrenaline rush, right? It, it, it really can induce, and instead of calling it kind of an adrenaline rush or, or, or kind of giving that connotation, but really a flow state. Right yeah. where where we have heightened catecholamines, we're in the zone where we're taking care of a patient and a very acute issue. That is an incredibly seductive time um, for surgeons, and it really does get to the core of why we enjoy what we do. We're not only are we having an incredible experience, but we're doing it while we're caring for someone. Yeah. That's that's an incredibly powerful moment for us. But you're right, that that gets lost and you lose that value when your mind is spinning and you're out of control. And to get back to kind of the burnout or or even the term used before the spins, when things are out of control, not only can you not experience that, but it puts you in an unsafe, puts you and that patient in an unsafe, potentially unsafe circumstance. And we've all operated in stressful situations. We've all operated with stressful things going on in our lives. And very few patients have gotten harmed, but there is always the opportunity that they can. And if we have the ability to address those things beforehand and create foundational, once again, to use the term wellness, but foundational wellness, um, I think it's it's incredibly valuable to who we are and, and it's a great point to bring up. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that, uh, Phil. And, and I'm glad you, you you brought up that flow state as well because I've probably been a bit of a down. I've been talking about negative stuff a fair bit. But you're right. Um, how fun is it to, to do, you know, a complex operation well? And like you said, you know or you can be confident that the patient's going to have a really good outcome. You can never you – should, I should take that back. You should never know. <laughs> you can't even high-five them anyone when you even when they head out the door because you never know what's going to happen but you can be confident because you have put all that effort and the years of training into uh, learning those skills and knowing how to do it and when you do it you get into that flow state it is pretty cool right it's a it is a great feel and it's a real privilege that we get as surgeons to be able to do that i reckon and that's the sort of stuff we want to also instill in our trainees as they're coming through um but in order to be in that flow state, yeah, you need to have your head right. Yeah. Um, and um, and that's what I think we can all work towards. Yeah, it's it's incredible. Um, Jeremy, I want to keep running with this if you're okay. I mean, I'm having yeah. a great time yeah. and I think there's some okay. really, yeah, cool. really important things here. Um, you know, one of the things you brought up and I would like to get into in, in a few minutes is kind of meditation and formal mindfulness. Mm. And um, the first thing I brought up is you said you got into it by looking at the background and kind of the history of meditation. And that made sense to you. I have a daily meditation or mindfulness practice. I got into it, reading into the science of it and how the science works. And I think there's, there are ways um, that people can get into this and it's incredibly fascinating subject area. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'd just like to ask you kind of what's your mindfulness practice at the moment? You know, what are you, what are you doing? What's your practice and how have you found it to uh, affect you? Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, I, I all I, it's nothing fancy. Uh, I literally just, uh, and, and it's not even every day. Um, I don't, uh, I, um, you know, there, there are pros and cons for being too regimented. I think um, I don't want to sort of 
uh, straightjacket myself into I must do this every day sort of type thinking. Um, so I do it, I guess, when I when I when I do it, and uh, and it's probably you know a few times a week, but it's literally only ten minutes at a time. And and I like I said, I do use the uh, the waking up app uh, that that Sam Harris has uh, put out. Um, what I like actually about his app is that it's not necessarily just the one person guiding the meditation. He's got a whole lot of other uh, you know, real meditation experts um, from across the world who can who can give these guided meditations. I I struggle. I have to admit, I struggle with just self guided meditation. I um, I do like a little bit of direction, um, and I'll typically do it at the very beginning of the day. Um, so be just to you know, <laughs> you compare it to uh, waking up and checking your Twitter feed. Um, uh, as the first thing you do, you couldn't be, you know, more poles apart than than getting your head in a a centered, balanced, peaceful state. Than starting with with a few minutes of, of meditation. So that, yeah, that's what I do. Um, and I'll go into, you know, if it's if it's warm outside, I'll I'll go and sit out in the backyard, which is really nice. If it's cool, I'll go into a, a you know, my my study and sort of seal myself off for for about 10 minutes before I enter the day. What how about you? What you, yeah what's your yeah my it's a, like everything, it's always in evolution. Um currently uh my my practice is I wake up in the morning and I do uh, yoga and usually 10 minutes of mindfulness directly after that. Mm-hmm. And for a long time in the morning I needed like you, I needed a guided kind of meditation. Um, I was just kind of too all over the place, but I'll tell you currently as of the last probably month or so, I now just kind of have a timer and I've embraced 10 minutes of silence and I'm doing it myself. And usually the first few minutes, my mind is all over the place, but I've embraced that. I've embraced kind of the default mode network of our brain where it's connecting all of the thoughts that were going on overnight or what's happening for the day. And I found by just letting that happen for two or three minutes, I then get seven minutes of kind of quiet and instead of trying to fight that. And and that's where I am right now. Um, And listen, I'll be somewhere else in two or three months and I'll be somewhere else a year from now, but that's kind of my, my meditation practice now. And I found tremendous benefit. The analogy I like to give is yoga, for instance, giving me tremendous benefit in self physical self-awareness, understanding what parts of my body I'm using and meditation has given me tremendous benefits in self-awareness of my mind, where I am emotionally, physically, when I'm feeling taxed, when I'm feeling stressed, um, helping me understand what's going on with my mental state. And I think that's been a huge benefit. And listen, 10 minutes a day is really, if you think about Netflix or movies oh. and Twitter and all of the other things we spend time on, 10 minutes a day for mindfulness that oh. makes you better throughout the day is a a minor investment totally it's you know exactly right 10 minutes is nothing right and and it's you know it, it given all of the distractions that we will get sucked into for for well well over 10 minutes probably it, it um it is way more valuable <laughs> and uh yeah i totally agree with that and i love what you said about evolution because that's the other thing i think um you know again sort of talking to perhaps to our juniors is no one's got it sorted no one's got it all figured out. It, we're all works in progress. And I think to say that we're evolving, whether it's in meditation practice or just even as people is super important. Um, I think that's something that, you know, when you're a kid, you sort of, you look up to adults and you you imagine that they, they know stuff and um, they've got it all worked out and uh, yeah, this is how the world works and so on. And, and it's a myth. Um, yeah. They know more than you do, but, but they're, you know, if they're, if they're particularly if they're uh, looking for a bit of self exploration and and uh, an, an examined life, then they'll be on a they'll be on a journey, which which doesn't finish until you you know you drop off the tweet. Yeah, absolutely. So, and then yeah, and then you're somebody else's work in progress at that point as they're trying to you know figure it out. But yeah. you know, I, I see that right now. And you talked in the beginning just to kind of bring this full circle about your family and your mother and kind of transitions and struggles there. And I see this with my grandmother who was incredible inspiration for our whole family. She's now 102 years old. Wow. Um, And honestly, up until the last few months was the sharpest elderly woman you've ever met an incredible rock and backbone for our family. You'd go to her for advice, anything, you know, she was, she'd seen it all and she'd done it all. And her stories were incredible. 
And now to see her starting to struggle with mental deterioration, to be honest with you. And um, some days recognizing how good she is and other days recognizing that she's slipping. We're all in evolution and uh, we're all, you know, challenged. That's the human experience. And, and, you know, thank you for bringing that part of this up too. Well, that's, that's a very um, Buddhist sort of uh, aspect as well, isn't it? Is that, uh, you know, <laughs> you sh- shouldn't be expecting anything to be constant. Uh, that is life. It is just constant change actually. So hence the evolution. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're, uh, uh, we've been talking about some amazing things for a while. Um, last words, Jeremy, anything else you want to kind of talk about? Um, <laughs> I think we've, like you said, I think we've covered so much, Phil. It's been, it's been awesome. I, um, like I said, I, I guess just sort of rounding it back is, is, uh, is having these conversations. Um, they're not easy for surgeons, I think, to have. Um, our, our training and our, environment and our culture is such that it's not necessarily been conducive and i think um there's so much uh unwellness around that uh which is it's it's basically endemic um it's not just sporadic it's 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 all around us that it's really important that we at least open up the conversation and um hopefully we've uh, gone some way to achieving that today so i'm, I'm really appreciative of you uh, inviting me on the podcast it's been awesome yeah, and I'm really appreciative of you um, having the time and us be able to connect from from around the world. Technology is amazing, isn't it? Sometimes uh, makes you really grateful for for some of the things we're able to do. Yeah. So just to kind of summarize some of the really um, amazing things that that you've said today and that we've gone over, um, we started with with modeling vulnerability, and we talked about how important it was for vulnerability, not only in uh, kind of our personal relationships, but in patient care in leadership roles, in bringing up the next generation and really expressing that vulnerability through a variety of means. Um, But that's a great way to connect with people and expressing our fear rather than kind of hiding it in that stoic surgical sense. Mm. We talked, we spent a fair amount of time on on mental illness and how it affects all of us, how it affects our families, how it affects our loved ones and whether we're diagnosed or not, how the human experience has, you know, mental challenges. Um, and and emotional challenges to it. And part of that, one of the great um, contextual things you brought up was kind of the role we are constantly going through between being a carer or a caregiver and being the recipient of care. And as surgeons, we are not very good at being the recipients or seeking that mm-hmm. care. And it's okay to let others care for us. And it's okay to seek that care. Mm-hmm. We spent um, a fair amount of time talking about burnout, and I really liked your term, spin, um, because anybody who's, who's experienced that, spin is a great way of putting it. It absolutely feels like you are in a cyclone and things around you are just going a million miles an hour, and you don't know whether you're going left, right, up, or down, um, but mm-hmm. you're just trying to put one foot uh, in front of the others. And and that story was, was incredible, and how you came out of it, um, seeking out help. Um, being okay with medications, whether it's short-term or long-term, whatever you need, but also recognizing that exhaustion uh, is is part of this. And when you're not feeling like yourself, uh, it may be time to kind of sit there and try and be uh, insightful uh, and thinking about um, who you are. And the punchline of that whole story was patients get the best care by surgeons who care for themselves. And I think that really was kind of the theme uh, theme for the day. And so- um, to say, you know, uh, I wish you the the best of luck in your surgeon as human uh, course uh, with the trainees and really look forward to hearing how that goes. Really look forward to connecting on some of the books uh, that you mentioned and some of the people you mentioned uh, kind of throughout our our conversation and really look forward uh, as we finish to discussing evolution, how we evolve as surgeons to be better, kinder, to care for each other, and ultimately to deliver the best care uh, for each other and for our patients. Yeah. No, I think you've summed that up up beautifully, Phil. And and I suppose if if I can just maybe say one more thing, it's a first step, I think, for any uh, surgeons out there who want to sort of go down this path is, is to start by exploring who you are yourself. That, that's the starting point, I think, and then uh, everything can flow from there. But that, but that, that, that first step can be, um, you know, you have to be intentional about it and and really 
decide, yep, I, if I want to be the best surgeon possible, let alone human, then I'm, from a professional point of view, I actually need to do a bit of work on figuring out who I am. Couldn't agree with you more. Jeremy, thank you so much for, for your time. Uh, enjoy your day. And I look forward to seeing you in person uh, at some point in the future. Yeah, me too, Phil. Thank you so much. It's been fantastic. Cheers. Thanks. I know a lot of people can benefit from the conversation, so thank you. Pleasure.